Fromer Travel Show. I'm your host, Pauline Fromer. We're going to start today's show with a cheers, a cheers to the spirit that a lot of Americans don't think to drink, uh, which is sherry. Peter Barron, who is one of the authors of our new Spain guide, just wrote a fabulous article on Fromers.com about the sherry triangle in Spain. He's here to discuss it. Welcome back to the Travel Show, Peter. Hi, Pauline. Lovely to be here. So uh, for those of our listeners who can't really picture what sherry tastes like, can you, can you tell us a little bit about this spirit? Yes, and I think you're right. I think people uh, beyond Spain don't necessarily think of, of drinking sherry. So sherry is fortified wine, a fortified wine, which is made in only one place in the world, which is in a corner of southwestern Spain, but between the three cities of Jerez, San Lucar de Barrameda, and El Puerto de Santa Maria. Um, and it comes in a variety of styles. Very strangely, um, sherry can be some of the, the, the world's driest wine. Uh-huh. And at the other end of the scale, it is some of the, the world's sweetest wine. So it goes from Fino, and pe- people may know Tio Pepe, for example, which is the most famous uh, f- Fino uh, sherry, which is very pale and very dry. And then at the other end of the scale, you have Pedro Jimenez, which is, uh, or PX, which as it's known, which is very dark and, and really tastes like liquid raisins, very, very sweet. Not something you could drink a great deal of, but it's lovely, for example, poured on uh, ice cream. Huh. Okay. And so when people go to Spain, are there the same types of uh, winery tours that you get for, say, Champagne or Pinot Noir? Okay. So where do you you start if you want to get an overview of of the sherry making process? Yes. Well, I I mean, if you have... have Three or four days, I think maybe four days would be the ideal. You could get around the three points of the Sherry Triangle. And they're not very far apart. They're, they're about 15 miles apart. But I think the obvious place to, to start is in Jerez itself, which is the, the, the capital of, of the Sherry region and indeed gives Sherry its name. And it's in Andalusia, right? It is. It is it's in the, it's in the uh, western corner of Andalusia. Uh, it's it, it's pretty easy to get to. Um, it, there are good flights from from Madrid or Barcelona. You can fly there from from London or Frankfurt, for, for example, uh, and you can also get there by uh, by rail. So um, yeah, starting in Jerez is probably the, the best place to to, to 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 kick off. And I mentioned Tio Pepe, the, the Gonzales Bias Bias Company is really the the, the giant. Of the of the sherry uh, industry, and they have a they have an amazing kind of compound right in the centre of town. You, when you arrive in Jerez, uh, you'll see sign, signs uh, to it, and I think it's the most obvious place to start because it is it's a great introduction to uh, the whole world of of sherry. It's va- it's a vast compound. You actually go around it in a little motorised train, one of those little sort of tourist motorised trains that takes wow. you bodega to bodega. But it's 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 dripping with with history and atmosphere and you go through these wonderful white painted bodegas with you know mold on the walls and uh, old bottles and and so on uh, and you see the whole process of how they how they make sherry and it is it's very 
different from from traditional wine in the sense that there's no there's no vintage of sherry or in, in most cases you don't drink sherry from a particular year what they do is is blend it with with, with a what they call the solera system and you, you you'll see the the three rows of, of barrels lining the the bodegas and you'll see the cellar master dipping his venenthia which is the 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 famous little uh, cup on a cane which he dips into the to the uh, uh, the barrels to, to to taste a little bit and make sure that the blend is is correct so it's a very interesting he spit uh, it out because he must be drunk all day if he's just well, it, tasting it, it is, barrel after barrel indeed it, it is worth saying that that sherry is considerably stronger than normal table wine so normal table wine I suppose 12 to 14 percent alcohol most sherry is 15 to 20 percent. Uh, alcohol, so you do need to uh, to take care when visiting. But, but as, as you mentioned, you can get around. You know, in in Jerez, there are I don't know how many bodegas that that do tours, but there there there's probably twenty or or there's very many. Uh, so you, there are some some excellent sherry tours, and of course you can do the same thing in the other two points of the sherry triangle, San Lucar and El Puerto de Santa Maria. Uh, now, well. when I'm giving advice on regular wine tourism i always say you don't want to visit more than three wineries in a day because it it gets repetitive and also yes the wine starts tasting really good by the third one even if it's crappy wine (laughs) but and you you might be uh, tempted to buy something you shouldn't if you do too many plus you get very very drunk can you do three in a day, or would it be better just to do two? I wouldn't recommend three. I, I think two in a day is is great because it, it, so if you start in Jerez and you do Gonzalez Bias, Tio Pepe, the, the the big famous one, that that's a great introduction. The other one I would really recommend uh, in in Jerez is Bodegas Tradición, which is a, a small kind of boutique bodega that specializes in in old sherry so 20 year old and 30 year old sherries which are sort of dark and you know the color of mahogany and wonderful but the great thing about that bodega is that they also have a private art collection and it's a very magnificent art collection with paintings by Velázquez and and Goya and 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 other great uh, painters and it's wonderful because you get to the end of the, the 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 tour and you have your you're tasting your sherry and at the end they say now, feel free to take your glass of your last glass of sherry in and peruse the art uh, exhibition. And there's no hurry to move on. And you can spend an hour in there just looking at the pictures, uh, sipping your glass of 30 year old sherry. It's kind of that, that's amazing. Now, beyond the sherry, what do you see and do in this corner of Spain? What, what are the highlights? Yeah, well, Jerez is actually, I would say, probably the, the, the city that most exemplifies the Andalusian way of life. So there are really three passions that that, that, that uh, happen in, in the city, which is sherry, obviously, uh, horsemanship and, and a love of horses uh, and everything that goes with that. And then, of course, flamenco, which many people think uh, originated in, in Jerez. And you can, you can do all three of those activities very readily, even during a, a short stay. And in, in terms of horses... Um, the 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 Royal School of Equestrian Art is really a wonderful place to to go to, where you'll see the Andalusian purebred horses 
dancing uh, with you know absolutely in harmony with their with their riders and the great thing about that is that they they have it's a little bit complicated so they they have a couple of performances evening performances a week and those are wonderful but actually if you go at different uh, at another time and you can go during the day you can see the rehearsals for uh, the, these performances and in, in some ways i think the rehearsals are even more fascinating than than seeing the the performance itself and the, there's a museum of uh, of uh, the whole history of Andalusian horses, so I think I would strongly recommend if you if you feel you need a break from all that sherry, going and uh, and, and looking at the, the the wonderful balletic horses is is something that's great to do. And then of course, so when you see the when you see the rehearsals, you see the training going on, right? You, you see the horses you, making mistakes and and what they have to do to get them into the patterns that they're in and all of that, right? Exactly. It's it's extremely fascinating, and the the, the level of of perfection uh, and harmony that the the rider and the horses achieve is is truly uh, astonishing. And then the flamenco shows. Do flamenco. you need do you need advanced reservations for that? Are those done for the tourists, or is it really more integrated into the culture? It's much more integrated into the culture, and it's and it's very informal. So. There's a, there's a tradition in, in uh, Jerez of what they call tabancos. And these are little little bars that sell sherry um, and uh, also something to eat. Uh, and very often they have uh, flamenco uh, as well. There's one in particular that I, that I would recommend, which is called uh, El pa- Pasaje. Uh, and it, um, it's a tiny little place. And they actually and they have daily performances of flamenco, but because it's so small, they have a, a mirror in the corner so that the people who can't can't get round, can't get round <laughs> to see the, the flamenco can watch it in the mirror. Wow! So a busy place, uh, comings and goings at the bar with with sherry coming from the barrel uh, and little snacks. They have a they have a snack called chicharrones, which is a pork belly, sort of thinly sliced pork belly, which they serve on a piece of waxed paper. Uh, you can imagine you've got the flamenco going on. Uh, you've got uh, the, the busy bar selling cherry uh, and delicious snacks as well. It's it's wonderful. That sounds amazing. And in the other cities, is it the same uh, a trilogy of, of things to see and do? Or well, is it... Or... The other two are slightly different in the, in the sense that they're seaside towns. So um, San Lucar de Barrameda is a, is a beautiful seaside town. And, and they produce what's called manzanilla, uh, which is... Which is Version of Fino, very similar to Fino, but it has a kind of salty tang because it is aged by the sea. The wind comes in from the sea, and actually, Manzanilla is more popular in Spain uh, than it is than than the wine from from Jerez. It's very very popular. So, for example, where we live, very often if you go out, you'll see people in a, in a bar. They they would kick off the evening with a glass of Manzanilla, or if you go to the the feria in Seville, you will see. The, the, the wonderful sight of couples riding into town on a horse, you know, with the, the sombrero and the and the flamenco uh, dress, uh, perhaps uh, holding a, a couple of glasses of um, of manzanilla. Oh my goodness, that yeah. sounds amazing! <laughs> and manzanilla and the other. So yes, San Lucar is the home of manzanilla. The, 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 again, there are some wonderful tours there. The the uh, bodegas they all have the beautiful sort of antique artwork artwork of the logos you know the f- famous m- many famous brands there uh, in in San Lucar. The the other great thing about San Lucar is the seafood it's it's absolutely wonderful. So you have a, a strip down by the the, the river 
uh, of seafood houses, which are always full at lunchtime, uh, and you'll see people, or you should do it yourself, you, you eat the langoustines, which are just sprinkled with salt, and then have a, a carafe of cold manzanilla from the, the barrel. Um, oh, and wow. Look out over the the Doniana Nature Reserve, and that's of course where you have you, know, you have the flamingos. You have beautiful beaches. You have the flamingos flying above, and wow. umbrella, umbrella pines. And that, you can actually take a little uh, ferry across that river and walk off your uh, sherry after lunch. Oh my goodness, it sounds magical. So, a practical question: uh, you're you're learning about sherry. Are the tours in English? Yes. Yes, um, uh, most of the of the bodegas do do tours in in English and in Spanish at, at, at different times. So if you if you go online, uh, for for example, if I mentioned the Gonzalez Bias one, which is very well organised and a, a little bit corporate, uh, you can uh, you can choose your your tour uh, in English. And I, I there's. I remember this in the third city, which is or the third town, which is actually El, El Puerto de Santa Maria. That's where Osborne, who have the famous roadside black bulls, their their logo is the or the the, the black uh, bull. Uh, uh, I don't know. if I've never heard of Osborne's black bulls. Can you, uh, you, you, you talk about that? Are you familiar with the the kind of silhouette? Of a black bull, which very much represents Spain, and, and okay. it's a fascinating. That's a fascinating story because if you if you drive around Spain at various points uh, on the on the highways, you will see these huge black silhouettes of of bulls on 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 the uh, on the side of the road, um, and they're just painted black. Uh, but what it what it was was that they used to be advertisements for Osborne brandy. Um, and then I can't remember. I think it was in the 1970s. Uh, the Spanish government made it illegal to have these roadside advertisements, um, so they had to paint it. They painted it out, and they so they became a black silhouette. And then a few years later, um, the, the, the government said, we, we, "We've got to take these these adverts down altogether. These these huge uh, bulls. They must be removed." And there was outcry because by that stage they had become a sort of national symbol. Anyway, they they have now been saved for the nation, and they are they are a wonderful symbol of uh, of Spain. But the the Osborne cellars uh, they are in El Puerto de Santa Maria, and again it's a beautiful winery. You have a, a wonderful tour, and they also have a museum that uh, tells the history of the these roadside uh, bulls of the roadside signs. Oh, how great! Wow. Well, you've brought it all to life, Peter. Thank you so much. It was so much fun to speak with you here on the Frommer Travel Show. You're very welcome. Thank you. Our next guest is Julie Frieder. She is one of the authors of a kind of mind-boggling new book. It's called Wonder Year, A Guide to Long-Term Family Travel and World Schooling. Hey, Julie, welcome to the Frommer Travel Show. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. And when I say mind-boggling, I don't mean that as an insult. It's just reading the book, there are so many different ways you can and what the book is about is it's about taking your children on the road for a year or longer. And there's so many different ways to accomplish that. 
that's what was so surprising to me. Do you hear that a lot? Yes. I mean, there's, you know, we were writing this book, all three co-authors, we each had experience at different times doing a long-term trip with our families. And we each found it to be this profoundly moving experience that we wanted to share how to do that with the world. And yeah. so we collaborated on this book and, you know, the, there, there's no right or wrong way to do it. And as we were writing, COVID hit and we thought, oh my goodness, you know, is this prop, is this dead on arrival really? But yeah. in fact, because moving through the experience of COVID, families questioned what mattered. And yeah. students gained experience with remote school and working adults gained experience with virtual work. So lo and behold, we found ourselves in this interesting intersection that really made it relevant. But yeah. the answer is there's no right or wrong way to do it. And there's no length of time to become a traveling family. But that's right. what the year is about, to get into well, motion together. Yeah. Let's talk about how you did it, because uh, each of the authors did it in a different way. You stayed in the United States or in North America, and you, one of the key things that you get from this type of experience is a profound appreciation of simplicity and how that can reshape a family's interactions, mindsets, lives, and you had to downsize big time to be able to achieve this year. So tell us about the process of just getting ready to go for you <sighs> and getting everything into an RV. Yeah, it's it was an extraordinary process, finding the right rig. We, we had a lot of reasons for wanting to stay in the U.S. Namely, we wanted our son, who was nine at the time, to be able to engage through language with as many people that we were going to meet. And so we were deliberate in that decision. Also with my background in sustainability, we were able to, to really spend a lot of our time outside. We were kind of living in nature for the entire year. Wow. The decision about the rig and how big it was, um, it was really fun. And I will tell you, I had a list of lists. It, I had a master <laughs> list that was subcategorized with everything that had to happen. And honestly, that's why we wrote the book as well. We don't want people to have to figure this all out on their own. There's information spread across the web, spread across articles and books. And we were determined to consolidate that information and help people walk through all the steps for planning, and getting out on the road together. So our decision, we ended up with a 24-foot camper. We put solar panels on the top. We wanted huh. to be able to be completely offline and in the bush. We took four, four bicycles, three kayaks, an 85-pound dog. <laughs> and my dear neighbor said, take something comfortable. So I took nice cotton sheets and a down comforter. Huh. And um, you're so right about the simplicity. We started out with a lot more plans and a lot more structure. And every day that went by, we just became more comfortable as travelers and mm -hmm. welcomed the simplicity, welcomed the not knowing, and found ourselves 
as travelers. Now, you said that the most common question you got was, how the hell do you afford to do something like this and that, you know, to travel for a full year. And I, I want to read something from the book because I thought it was really fascinating. You, you give examples of how different people have done this. So the Gallagher family of four stayed for roughly three months at each of four budget-friendly destinations in Southeast Asia and Central America. Mom taught ESL online part-time and set her own schedule while dad worked online 30 hours per week. The Martinez family of four began saving for their wonder year 10 years before they left, and they earned additional income for renting their home while they were gone. And then another one sold all of their assets. I mean, just such a wide variety. Do you know, do most people plan to work during these years, the, the ones who decide to, to spend a year with their children like this? Or, or is it really a case of people saving up and making it work that way most of the time? Yeah, well, thank you for asking the question. You know, it is, it is one that we hear all the time, both in terms of how do you have the, the funding, mm-hmm. how do you have the money, and how do you have the time? Right. And getting a way to do, to do it, 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 it can happen through careful planning and having this long lead-in, or it can be more spontaneous. Again, I, the, the, the short answer is it looks different for everyone. Sure. And I think there's this narrative that has skewed the reality that you can only do this if you're really wealthy and you can afford to take, you know, to not work. Right. So it can look like anything. And what we would encourage is for people to dip their toe in if they want to, or plan the big trip and make it work in a way that works for your family. If that requires working from the road, there are lots of ways to do that. People can take their job with them. You can take their skills with them. You Mm -hmm. can be a pet sitter, an online music teacher, a yoga instructor, an arborist. Their list goes, we met we interviewed so many people for this book and heard the most amazing examples of what people were able to do from the road. Some folks find location-specific work, like you want to be a campground host. Maybe you mm-hmm. stay put for a couple months and work as a barista, earn some money, stay in an inexpensive accommodation, and then move on to the next place. So definitely working from the road is a, is a way to make it affordable if, if that's in the works for some families. Other people can do it through savings. And it's very true. We met families who saved for 10 years. But the really cool thing about long-term travel, and I want to be really clear about this, it's not being on a long-term vacation. And so there's opportunities that become available as a long-term traveler. For example, home swapping or house Mm. sitting. There are ways to avoid and lower costs every day I know you've talked about your daughter did woofing overseas. Yes. Well, well, she did a work away, work okay. away. She work wasn't away. just farms, but yes, okay. yes. Um, so that's a neat opportunity to have an exchange where you can get free board or food in exchange for doing some work. We did worldwide workers on organic farms as a family. Huh. We lived for free in an Italian villa. In wow. the mornings, we harvested olives. And we had these long afternoon lunches and we did it as a family and it was wonderful. So as a long-term traveling family, you have all these ways to avoid costs, to lower costs, and to come up with a budget that works for you. 
But one, one thing I'd like to interject, and some families found that their cost of living was much, much lower on the road. I mean, not always, that doesn't always happen. But if you go to, say, Southeast Asia or Central America, you're going to be paying a lot less for food. You're going to be paying a lot less for housing. And so uh, I think that's a big surprise and, and another way you show that this isn't just for richy riches. No, that's exactly right. And you have choices. You can do things in the off season. You can uh-huh. find free activities. You can shop in as a long-term traveler. You can shop in the local grocery store or the locally, local market and cook at home. And, and, and those are all a lot less expensive than going to a fancy restaurant and kind of having the, the price tag just keep adding up. So I, I, I think, again, the, the long-term family um, travel model is very different and it, it opens up other possibilities to make it more affordable. And once you're in it, you start to see there are, there are ways to do that. And you're totally right. There are many places around the world where the cost of living is significantly less expensive than, right. than how right. we live in the States. And so, so the uh, money aspect of it can be intimidating before you do it. And then I know for me, I didn't do this with my kids, although they traveled a lot, but we never just took off. I, I, I don't, I, I would have been intimidated being the person fully in charge of their educations because my math is terrible <laughs> and that means my science skills are terrible, but there was, I, I learned so much from the book. I had no idea that you could actually enroll your kid short term uh, many places around the world, or you can find teachers. I mean, so how do people approach the educational side of this? Because you don't want your child to come back and be behind their peers. And there has been a lot of talk recently. It's very interesting. Um, one of the big evangelists of homeschooling who did it for religious reasons and and gave a lot of statistics to the press uh, recently, a lot of his statistics have been disputed that a lot of kids who are homeschooled actually do fall behind mm-hmm. uh, and may not be getting the education that they should. Now, homeschooling is different than world schooling, but it's a big, it's big pressure, especially if you're trying to learn, earn a living too, as you're doing it. So how do people even get their minds around schooling their children? Yeah, it's, it's, it's a really good question, and it's one of the topics I love to talk about. Again, it's featured prominently throughout the book because we felt like we had learned and figured out a lot of solutions and wanted to share that with families so that their fear, their fear of their kids falling behind, their fear of what if, their fear of having to do exactly what a classroom teacher could do when they're not a teacher, that that can be put aside and the opportunity of learning in the world together instead can fill that space. And there is a ton of fear. And I want to say I understand because I was <laughs> I was afraid. Yeah. But what I quickly figured out as a traveling parent who is responsible for my kids' education, my number one job was to create surface area between us and the world. And what I mean is all I had to do was expose him to places, to history, to textures, to architecture, to music, to food. And as long as he was experiencing these new these new experiences, there was learning that was happening. And 
to just take a step back for a moment, there is there are state laws in across the U.S. that sure. determine what's required, and they're not uniform. So it's important for people to check with their state to see what you know. Is there a test that has to be taken, or is there just an agreement that I need to sign in order to take my child out of school? And typically, they are registered as homeschoolers for the period of time that you're traveling. That's right, the right. logistical piece. There's other logistical things. Do you need Wi-Fi? Do you need space? Do you need books? Kind of taking care of those is the upfront work. And yeah. then beyond that, the question is really how much structure do you want? There are plenty of online curricula that families who feel they want to track what a student would be doing in school, they can buy all those resources. And many people start off that way and find that as they're in the world, they loosen things up. And that's the really exciting part. We love to talk about that in the book, to use, to take a cue from the world for the education. What I'm trying to say is you can build uh, lessons around your itinerary. If you're going, if you want to study Mayan history, you can go to the Yucatan. If you want to study Greek mythology, you can go to Greece. Sure. You can look at what your kids are interested in. My son- I got to get back to math though. <laughs> How do you work in math? We, I bought the fourth grade math curriculum. Uh -huh. Okay. And I, you know, I, I took along these enormous spiral books oh, and boy. quickly within three weeks, I was done with it and said, you know what? My son's going to be in charge of our mileage log. He's going to do every single applied math function that we can possibly do. So huh. he created charts. He tracked our efficiency at different elevations. He calculated the costs. Everywhere we went, he did the mapping. He did the mileage. He did very well with applied math throughout the entire year that we were gone. We did have a um, a subscription to IXL, which is one program that you can sort of use a specific math program, but he mastered his times tables. I knew what was required because I checked, you know, the, there's all, you can do all kinds of research to find out what your kid would be expected to know that year and try to, to come sure, up with a way sure. to, 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 to duplicate that. In the end, to be truly honest, he was in the advanced track and when we came back, he wasn't twice advanced, like he wasn't huh. two years ahead. And right. had he wanted to be an applied mathematician or a theoretical mathematician in college, that might have been a problem. But he's in an honors engineering program as a second year college student. Wow, great. Tell you what, he studies it because he loves it, not because huh. he has to. And I think that love of education and the inherent curiosity and the, the the creativity that he gained while we right. were traveling has set him on a path as a lifelong learner. And I really believe that, Pauline. The, the seeds that are planted in a year when there's time to follow your curiosity and to learn side by side, parents and children together, it's that kind of exposure is the kind of opening that lasts a lifetime. And I see evidence, evidence of it every day. Yeah. No, I mean, I think my, my daughters are better human beings because they've gotten to travel so much. I mean, mm -hmm. it, it you, you need to see the world beyond your backyard uh, mm -hmm. to be a true global citizen. Did this year 
change your relationship? And did those changes last? Do you think you are a different family today because of it? I'm sure you were during the year, but uh, what were the legs for that ex- for this experience? Uh, thank you for that question too. I will say that families who travel and learn together side by side, day in, day out, become a very closely bonded unit. And that is certainly what happened for us. I say in the book, it gave us a backpack full of memories and we get really nostalgic. And every week we are, you know, we'll get pictures that populate and we share. And there's so many memories. My son, um, we spent three weeks in Alaska and we did this kayaking with an outfitter. And last year he said, you know, I'm going to go work there. So (laughs) he went back and worked at a place where he, we were just, you know, travelers years earlier and the legs are very strong and the bond is palpable still. And I do get nostalgic. Different from the bond you had before you traveled together? Yes. I think the, we, we just have one kid and one dog. And because we traveled in, you know, we had a small mobile home, but we, it was pretty fluid, our trip. And our son was able to be involved in so many different parts of the, the trip itself. I mean, I shouldn't say this. He even drove the rig. I mean, he drove <laughs> some of the back roads, but he had agency. He found that he matters. And when mm. he had ideas, they were heard. We didn't always agree with each other. And there was plenty of dissent. Sure. That made us even more creative in oh. how we solve problems and the life skills that he was picking up along the way. So, uh, you know, I really feel like he and we just gained so much respect for each other as a team. And oh. look, I know that it isn't perfect for every family that does it. And I don't want to sound naive or oversell the idea sure. for us. It really was the best year ever as individuals and as a family. I know that. I would always encourage families to try it. And we have sort of a discussion of, you know, roadblocks and bumps and when things go wrong and there's, but being in motion, even if it's for two weeks to figure it out, if it's confronting fear Mm -hmm. together and working through that, being creative and collaborative, those are things that pull people together and that will always be part of our family fabric. That's that's amazing. Yeah, and it's it's an absolutely fascinating book. I mean, just the well, it's a book about life, you know. How do you live as a family for a year with these added um not not challenges. I don't want to say stresses because sometimes they're joyous, you know, but you're 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 learning to be a nomadic family together and um and there's so many ways to do that i had no idea before i read the book it really was it opened my eyes so thank you highly recommend it now i'm i feel sad that my kids are in their 20s and we'll never get to do this with them but um hopefully others will read the book in time and and have this type of adventure too so thank you so much for appearing on the firmer travel show thank you so much what a wonderful conversation i really appreciate it thank you Sure. And that's it for this week's show. I thank you so much for listening. Uh, I will be in Los Angeles at the travel show there next week. So I hope you'll come out and see me. Use the 
Use the code FROMERSVIP. You get free advanced tickets. Okay, to those who are traveling, may I wish you a hearty bon voyage, and I'll see you next week. Channel seem the same.